0: Welcome to episode 10 of AHPs Off The Record. My name is Enna. And my name is Joe. And yeah, we've decided to have maybe a month off from podcasting just to give ourselves a little bit of a, a break,
1: but we're back with a great guest. We are indeed, uh, we're particularly excited to be interviewing someone from this profession, especially due to generally widespread lack of understanding or misconception about what they do, um, particularly in an acute healthcare setting.
0: Yeah exactly. Uh, we're really grateful to be joined today by dietitian Luke Cunningham who's very kindly joined us remotely from Cornwall. Luke, do you mind introducing yourself to everybody?
2: Yeah, hello everyone. My name is uh, yeah, Luke Cunningham and I am a professional lead for dietetics and a critical care dietitian down here in
1: Cornwall. Lovely. Um so at this point what we do is give a brief description of the profession that we are going to be talking about and this time it's my turn. So Wish me luck. So dietitians are degree-qualified health professionals who are regulated by law. They're trained to interpret the science of nutrition to help promote nutritional well-being, treat disease, and prevent nutrition-related problems through providing education and practical, personalised advice. They work with people at all stages of their lives in a huge variety of settings, including acute hospitals, the community, private practice, public health, and the media. Now there is a common misconception that dietitians just advise on a healthy diet or help people to lose weight. Luke, I'm sure you'll have lots to say on this, but what we want to get across is that this is only a very small part of a huge range of services that dietitians provide. We all need adequate nutrition and hydration to survive. But various medical conditions make this much more complicated for many people, which requires then the expert knowledge and skills of dietitians to help them stay as healthy as possible and optimise their chances of recovery. What do you think, Luke? It's
2: pretty uh, pretty comprehensive. I, don't I, should, <laughs> I, don't I, I would have done that, had I been put on the spot, so top mark, <laughs> I
1: think. Top mark. It took me about half an hour, so I'm glad you said that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, I mean, you could have just pinged me a message, I would have helped you out. Or is the challenge that you're supposed to just kind of, like, battle through?
0: So. That's 100% the challenge. Each time, <laughs> both of us take it in turns to pick which one we're going to do, and we just, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a challenge. So, it uh, sounds like you did a good job, though, Joe. Yeah, you did. I don't, I don't
2: think there's anything I would add. Um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, spot fun.
0: Okay. Okay, Should we get started with the questions?
2: Yeah, go for it. So,
0: so luke how did you get into dietetics
2: yeah uh i get i get asked this quite a lot actually um and i think that the the short answer for people who don't want to listen to me waffle on about it um <laughs> is that i just fell into it it was basically a, a complete accident you know i know there's like really what i consider really lucky people who kind of know really early on that they want to be a physio or they want to be a medic or whatever career um I didn't, I didn't really know too much about that so I think my my journey into dietetics started way back you know when I was starting high school and I was sort of pushed slash encouraged into rugby for lots lots of different reasons um, by my mum and I ended up having a bit of a knack for it and um, that culminated in some sort of England trials at the end of my high school years um, sort of 15-16 and during that process you're given um you know like training programs and, and you're given sort of basic nutrition programs so that the seed for kind of nutrition is important is kind of built in around that time uh prior to that my my diet was pretty terrible
1: <laughs>
2: i ate mostly uh beige food um i was really really fussy i used to drive my mom absolutely bananas um and my favorite, I think, my favorite meal was just massive balls of spaghetti, like slathered in butter, loads <laughs> of cheese, and then loads <laughs> of salt—like so much salt, like just, a, <laughs> just like a crazy amount. So it was like snow on on it. it <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, well, I, I didn't think so at the time. I thought it was brilliant, and obviously, the problem—the pro- the problem with eating so much salt—is mm. anything else just tastes absolutely dreadful. You, know, you eat vegetables and you're like, oh, tasteless. Just yeah. Awful. You could just so you know going away to those camps like kind of changed, really sort of changed me for for the better, I would say. And then obviously I, I had to do something, so I kind of thought, well, I'm quite good at rugby. I'll go to university. It was like I was at that generation where everyone just started to go to university, and despite the fact that no one in my family had really been before um and I didn't get great a levels and ended up having to settle for my second choice which was still I'd picked the University of Durham basically because a mate was going he was going to Durham (laughs) I didn't know anything about it I didn't know it was like the third oldest university in the UK I didn't know any of this he was just like yeah my dad went to Durham I'm gonna go to Durham I was like cool I'll I'll go to Durham Um, (laughs) and didn't didn't get into my first choice degree of biochemistry again just picked because I liked biology and I liked chemistry and that seemed to, <laughs> that seemed to straddle both worlds um, so I was like yeah I'll just go and just play a bit of rugby and then just see where that goes uh, didn't get in and phoned them up and said look I've got pretty dreadful A-levels and they went oh well we'll, we'll, we'll still take you, you can do biomedical science at, yeah. our new, at our new campus, it's this new campus and all I wanted to know is how close it was to the main campus so could I still go and play rugby, turns out it wasn't that close it was like an oh. hour hour and a half on the bus coupled with the fact that biomedical science is dead hard um you know i didn't know anything about it i got there i was like oh man this is like a lot of hours like we were in a lot of hours like lots of labs lots of pipetting little things into other <laughs> little things and you know it's a hugely hugely important job but one i just didn't really want to do but that undergrad did plant the kind of sort of clinical seed i suppose you know lots of the stuff that we did that applied that was quite like really clearly overtly applied to you know like a sort of clinical setting really really sort of caught my eye and also what you know while i was at university i met you know sort of five of five of the best friends that i have in the whole world and one of those people is my wife so that's pretty good oh um, so yeah, well, that's a nice story <laughs> yeah it was uh, you know she's been She's been doing it tough now for sixteen years. This year, um, putting up with me. Um, so yeah. So you know, again, having said, you know, my family weren't weren't academic in any way. So when I finished university, it was very much about like what you're going to do, get a job. And I kind of thought I might like hospitals, so I ended up uh, working uh, in a hospital as a trainee GI physiologist, um, like gastrointestinal physiologist. It was it was it would probably be called an apprenticeship now. I had to do another BSc as part of this job. Wow. I, again, I didn't pick it because I really wanted to do it. It was just like the pressure of get a job. I didn't have mm. great A-levels. I didn't get a great degree. I only got 2-2. So I wasn't a suitable candidate for any of these like graduate schemes or that traditional route. So I was like, ah, you know, I'll take this job on. It paid terribly because it was like an entry-level apprenticeship. <laughs> job. But anyway, I did it. And it, it didn't suit me. I, I didn't suit it but it confirmed that i really did like hospitals i really did want to work in, in a sort of clinical environment and during one of the clinics that i used to run um this chap came in and he was an exercise physiologist so i was i kind of started to hatch this plan about getting myself out of this job like i didn't really want to do it anymore and i was like well you know i like working out and and being active in and i like eating well so maybe there's a I kind of thought about being a personal trainer, but I couldn't really afford to do any of the courses. I did really strongly consider physio. I'd obviously come into contact mm. with a lot of physios um, in, you know, in sort of my relatively short rugby career. So I was like, I'll do physio. And then w- when I looked into it, I couldn't really afford to go back and be at uni again and all that. So looked into exercise physiology. Doesn't I didn't appear to be any jobs. When I say looked into, by the way, I literally mean like went on Google. for
0: Google, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I felt like, Or search engine of your choice um, (laughs) for like three hours or four hours or whatever. And I was like, I don't don't really think this is a bit of a go in terms of like the jobs market. And then kind of stumbled across dietetics, you know, and and any dietitians listening to this will, will probably have been through the same sort of heartache of do I become a dietitian or do I become a nutritionist? You know, researching the difference and, you know, driving myself absolutely crazy trying to work out, you know, what I should do. And the things that clinched it for me were number one. Diet- dietitians were the only jobs that seemed to come up in a hospital mm. um, I really really wanted to work in a hospital and the second one was that um, I could do a postgraduate diploma in it with an optional master's that and the diploma bit was paid and funded
0: mm. uh, okay
2: and the university that was running that course that I could potentially apply to was a difficult commute but a commu- you know commutable nonetheless from my mum's house in the northwest mm. uh, so I was like oh okay so as I said, I didn't get great A-levels, I didn't do very well at degree level um, for lots of reasons, and just sort of said, right, applied, and uh, must have said some some of the right stuff at interview and got on, and that, that was me, that was, I was away. So yeah, it wasn't a, a purposeful design by any stretch of the imagination, mm. it just kind of was very sort of hodgepodge, but yeah, the rest is history, I suppose.
1: Had you done any um any work experience with any dietitians or, or been able to see anyone in practice before you then went on to the course or
2: Yeah so yes the, the as part of like a like the prerequisite for of, of the application is that you've done a, a days um kind of work experience you know in a hospital so I pitched up like kind of organised it through the, my local department just so happened that there was a, a bloke working there there was like two or three blokes working there um and this guy had been to my school like he was like four mm. or five years older than me and he showed me enteral tube feeding like if someone had a nasogastric tube I, I was like you know what is going on here like how how, how has this been <laughs> happening and i don't know about like, i've never heard of it you know what i mean i've never heard of anybody being fed like this i was completely taken with that idea and was like oh what a thing to be able to do to like help somebody you know um, I was like really, really into it through that day, through that study day. Um, but other than that, you know, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't really ask my mum and dad. They they didn't know anything about this world, you know, in terms of like working in a hospital or, you know, going on to do more mm-hmm. studying. Um, you know, they, they just didn't have, have that knowledge. So it was literally just sort of sitting on the internet trying to work out, you know, what I could do. I did briefly flirt because everyone in my house at uni was applying for medicine. So I was like, oh, I'll just probably be a doctor then. But like, <laughs> really,
0: really casually.
2: But... Yeah. Just literally. Yeah. yeah. And I, honestly, just so naively, oh, I'll just be a doctor. Everyone else is doing it. You know, I like, just apply. <laughs> and obviously quite, quite rightly, you know, I can't stress that enough. Quite rightly. I was rejected outright. from university. <laughs> I, You know, you think about some of the people that apply to medicine, I've been like trying to be, a, you know, literally like from day one they want to be a doctor mm. i just was like oh what are you up to there i'll apply for medicine right, i'll probably do that and then just did no work for it like i don't even know if i did any work experience i think i just was like well i've done a degree in biomedical science i'm halfway there i suppose and they were like <laughs> it's fierce one of the most competitive degrees that you can do they were like no we're not going to accept you uh, but looking back, you know, my wife, she she's a um, she's now a GP trainee. Looking at what she's been through, it's, it's mm. off. I, mean, I don't I don't certainly don't regret that decision. I thank I thank those six institutions that came back <laughs> no. and said
1: no. thank you.
0: <laughs> Out of curiosity, you said quite early on you were quite keen to work in a hospital. Like, what was it about working in a hospital that kind of that drew you to
1: it?
2: I I, yeah, I, I don't know to be honest with you. I think it's that I, I used to like, you know, I used to like doing a little bit of coaching for the juniors, and I used to like sort of, you know, just kind of liked helping people out. And you know, I had some like family members who had, you know, brushes with a hospital environment, and just thought it was a like it, it would be, a you know, a good place to work, I suppose. Um, mm. And yeah, certainly the some of the bits and pieces that I obviously came through on on the the undergrad kind of reaffirmed that i just thought it sounded really interesting it's like a a nice you know to use your knowledge i suppose Mm -hmm. like the bits that i really found this interesting on the course were the bits that were kind of just like you know this is the fault is mine i'm not saying like there's no point to this stuff because obviously it's really important um you know like all that area of like sort of out there research but i i couldn't see how you could have practically apply it if that made sense
1: mm.
2: um, whereas when i when i started the dietetics course there was very clearly a purpose to, there was a framework if you like to mm. you know, to your biochemistry and your physiology there was a there was like a, a sort of purpose to that learning as opposed to just knowing it for knowing its sake um and that's probably my complete lack of sort of academic maturity when i was you know at university first time round. just couldn't see the point <laughs> of it basically
0: and obviously, now that you you're you're well into your career, and like do you mind just telling us a little bit about what your what your current job role is, kind of like how you how you ended up there, really?
2: Yeah, so um as I sort of said in the intro, I, I kind of have two jobs um, which are split you know I do sort of 0.5 whole time equivalent of each, and one is joint professional lead of dietetics, and the other one is a, as a sort of frontline critical care dietitian. Um, So that's like two and a half days a week. Um, But, you you know, even that wasn't, was, I suppose, a little bit more purposeful than the career choice in and of itself, you know, which, which, as I said, just kind of happened by a happy accident. Um, I kind of knew straight away that, um, number one, I I really, really liked the hospital environment. I think also actually, just, just sort of touching on that question again, it was, there was, little bit certainly when I did that that year of of GI physiology it was quite a sort of team environment um I'd always you know I'd always played sort of team sports especially like you know rugby and whatnot um and I sort of the experiences that I had personally with community dietetics were quite isolated you know you were a little bit more autonomous but you were a little bit more kind of out on your own you didn't really tend to connect up with people whereas I you know I like loved the ward environment. I loved all the different professions on there, you know, um, all the other AHPs, like the pharmacists, the nurses, the doctors, all the different grades of doctors, you know, that um, hustle and bustle of that ward. I I was like really taken with. Um, So I kind of knew on qualification that I wanted to work as an acute dieting. Mm. If that made sense. And during my last placement, my final qualification placement, I came across, kind of rigid idea about what I wanted to do which to be honest with you probably probably wasn't the right attitude really and I I was lucky enough to have some experience of like uh, gastroenterology and um, hepatology and those sorts of things and I was just really like taken with that area of the the profession and I was like it's just fascinating Um, and then I found out about obviously like a little you know much much more about um, artificial nutrition support so like you know you need your, na- your gastric tubes, you need your veginal tubes, your pegs, your rigs, all that sort of carry on. Um and then once I found out parenteral nutrition existed, which is like feeding someone straight into um, you know, straight into your arm, straight into the blood, I was like, this is just incredible. What what a thing that someone's come up with. Um, you know, what a solution to to the problem of your bowel not working. Um mm-hmm. so I was like, that's that's kind of all I really ever wanted to do, to be honest with you. Um so after sort of milling about and faffing about for a number of years, like You know, once I got out there, I had a very strict. I kind of wish that i had been a little bit more broad-minded. You know, as a as a as an entry-level dietitian on on qualification, I kind of wish I'd taken my time a little bit
1: more Mm. and you know
2: done like a proper. I know, like it's like the rotation is kind of like entrenched in law in physiotherapy, isn't it? Whereas it's not so much that way in dietetics, and I kind of wish that I'd maybe been through a few rotations first. You know.
1: So at this point, we generally have been talking about um, the pandemic, which has obviously been a hot topic across the whole globe over the past year or more. And it'd be really good to know a bit about particularly... um, considering the huge role that dietitians have, have been playing across across the country in, in helping patients who've been really affected by the pandemic. It'd be really good to, to know a bit more about your experience of, of the pandemic and how your role may have been affected, and also just a bit more about the, the general role of, of dietetics in, in critical care and, and the acute setting.
2: Yeah, obviously, we're, uh, we're aware of the pandemic in Cornwall, <laughs> um, you know, um, and when it obviously all kind of came out and kicked off last, last year, last March, um, I'd been in my professional lead role for just over six months. So I, I started that back in July 2019. So in terms of like leadership chops, I was still pretty green, you know, and obviously like pretty much everyone else on the planet, I've never been through it. Pandemic of any kind. Um, <laughs> so I was like, oh, like, what's going on here? Um, and also, whilst I'd done lots of work that was conducive to critical care in terms of like, you know, the way those patients are fed, and I'd done bits and pieces of critical care cover, I'd never been a strict critical care dietitian before, even. So I started that role in January 2020. um And then, obviously, like, two, three months later, um, you know, it, it's all Sort of kicking off, so we didn't know what was going to happen. As it turns out, we were really, really fortunate in Cornwall, certainly during that first part of the year. Um, and that—that's not to say that we, you know, we didn't have incredibly sad cases, but the the volume was nowhere near like, you know, like you guys up in the in the more sort of urban areas and densely populated areas. Obviously, like your London hospitals, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, etc., um, you know, were were kind of almost like. You know, it was almost like unbearable to watch, like what was going on, and I think that initially we we had a, a discussion amongst our department about the you know the role of dietetics and should we be redeployed and, and do something you know like you were mentioning, Joe, you know, being a, a kind of sort of proxy nurse on critical care for for a month or so. We, we discussed all those options and we kind of decided that nutrition is so often overlooked. Um, you know, in non-pandemic times, that if we went to do that, then who would who would do the nutrition bit? You know, who who would make sure these people were optimized? You know, to, to the best of our abilities. So, what we what we tried to do is take on as much as possible roles that kind of related to nutrition. So, things like setting the feeds up. You know, just trying to lock off anything, take anything off off you know other staff that we could do. So, um, like mealtime bits and pieces. As I say, setting up feeds. Um, we had a couple of members of staff kind of learn how to place nasogastric feeding tubes those were the the types of our preparations as well as the the, the upskill um, you know for myself and my critical care colleague and um, kind of upskilling the rest of the department in terms of like lots of people had never done parental nutrition before and had never done loads and loads of artificial nutrition support so putting that document together and kind of helping support them feel you know in feeling relatively confident about seeing some of these patients as I say as it turned out our numbers meant that we we didn't need to enact a lot of those plans and actually lots of our work was out in the community it was very mm. non-ICU focused I think having reflected on this you know as a department I think it was almost harder for the more you know kind of outpatient clinic focused dietitians to upskill and step into an acute environment which is completely different versus an acute dietitian doing something that's a bit more acute does I don't know if mm. that make sense the change in world is much much greater to go from a sort of that regimented timing of a clinic um, that kind of predictable rhythm of you know six nine ten patients whatever it is to just managing a ward caseload is very very different versus someone who's very used to a ward who's just going on a slightly you know, slightly different ward where people are maybe a little bit sicker. So, we, yeah, we, we decided not to step into a kind of redeployment um, area, although we did have lots of challenges with people kind of all of a sudden um, for, for kind of various reasons, having to work from home. Um, we're not geared up with uh, kind of all-encompassing electronic patient record down here, so that meant remote working was really, really difficult. Um, and I think we were all caught old around... You know the isolation that you feel from working from home, and mm. that feeling of being cut off from from the rest of your team, especially if you're used to sitting in a busy office with lots and lots of people, and all of a sudden you just you know sat at home at your kitchen table, you know, which is using a tiny laptop. Obviously, everything's completely like not fit for purpose, if you like. So, but mm. that, that was our, kind of our initial preparations in terms of the the importance of nutrition specific to critical care. Again, I think it's something that's come to light over the past year as has been really really important you know I sort of see it as from the minute that these people arrive what you're trying to do is is feed them optimally to make sure that they're ready to go when they become rehabbable you know mm-hmm. to pinch a for you guys you know you, you're initially you're trying to sort of just get a little bit of nutrition in there, just get it started All the evidence base suggests that just starting to sort of something within the first 24 to 48 hours gives you the best type of outcomes. You don't want to give too much, um, you know, for lots of different reasons, but um, you kind of hit this middle ground where you're just trying to provide a little bit of energy uh, and a little bit of protein to support that person through the process. And then once they start to deescalate their care and they become, you know, ready for step down, you're, hopefully you've fed them optimally enough to make sure that they can start to engage with, you know, sort of meaningful sort of um, physical rehabilitation from, you know, from you guys' physios. And then obviously you've got um, occupational therapy, speech language therapy, psychology, all all those other guys from, from, from the wider team kind of start to really come into play. So I kind of see our role as getting people ready you know obviously there's a there's a lot of technical stuff that goes on while they're very, very sick. but ultimately, what you're trying to do is protect their you know their body stores, if you like, so that when they you know kind of recover um which they hopefully will, that they can start to start that process as quickly as possible of rebuilding you know rehabbing back to normal.
0: I do think I mean, been in ward rounds um with doctors the rest of the mdt but it's always been so like so valuable having a dietitian there because i mean for the most of us um our priorities are slightly different so i think as you said sometimes a patient's nutrition and their their feeding needs can be overlooked and sometimes it just takes the dietitian to be like they haven't they haven't eaten, and then the consultant's just there, like, okay, yeah, no, definitely, you're you're completely right, but it's actually having the person there to remind us because it's not at the forefront of our minds necessarily.
2: That's that's really nicely put. I think that um, sometimes, uh, you know, in the in the dietetic profession, we we do like to bemoan the lack of nutritional knowledge in in, our, in the wider healthcare. Um, you know our wider healthcare professional colleagues but it's, it's really really difficult because you know each profession has got their own priorities to think about and if if you never get told that this is really really important then it, it nutrition is almost so basic that it's really easily overlooked um and it's only when it starts to go really really wrong that you're like oh yeah I suppose it is. we should probably give them something to eat in one way or another um <laughs> And I think that's you know there's a challenge there to, to, to our profession to to reach over that divide and kind of just help gently educate people and put it into terms that you know that other professions will understand and obviously there's you know there's hundreds of dietitians that are doing that every day and you know um, really really successfully but I think that that is our that is just where we're at at the moment you know there's lots of work that can go on in the background around changing the content of other degrees and Uh, bringing in a more multidisciplinary team focus much much earlier on in in training but the reality of the situation is you know most people don't have that level of understanding so that's that's where we can come in and and that's okay you know we, we can explain it to you we can kind of show you um show you the importance of it if you like
1: that's so true and and even amongst sort of the general public you know it even going going to things like TV shows where it's showing people in in critical care or or very unwell, there's never any any sort of mention of, oh, how are they going to eat? You know, how are they going to get their nutrition? It's not something that that you would even really think about. And I think trying to get information out there, you know, with the post that we were doing initially with our with our page explaining that actually, you know, without without dietitians around to to give advice and, and make sure that people are are getting the right um, the right nutrition and hydration, these these people are not gonna be able to recover. Um, and trying to get that out to the to the general public and, and make people realise that actually it's such a crucial role. Like you you wouldn't really think about it, but you know someone someone's not going to get better unless they unless they're being fed.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I mean that, that that's so true. Um, or the, or the, the 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 difficulty with it is that it's really really difficult to study kind of in a clean manner because it's you know it's so dependent on lots and lots of other factors. You know, so just feeding somebody really, really well on its own is not enough. And I think that's sometimes a bit of an issue is it's it, it's, it's not a standalone treatment and, and, it, and it, it absolutely shouldn't be. In the same way that if you're trying to take an athlete to win an Olympic medal, don't just focus on their nutrition. There's a whole multidisciplinary team around that person or that team to make sure that, you know, their strength and conditioning is optimal and their psychology is optimal and yes their nutrition is really really important but it again going back to to kind of earlier in the conversation like it is a it is a team sport you know it is it does take every profession kind of coming and bringing their specific skill set to the table to potentiate the other ones um, and kind of supercharge that nutrition so for example if we feed these people and we feed them loads and loads and we do a really good job kind of isn't the whole story if there's no physio there to move them around or to, you know, to like, to look after that ween or, or whatever it might be. You know, you can't, you can't just do that one element. Um, I just think that unfortunately nutrition does get a little bit like, oh yeah, we should probably feed them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you see that a lot on on your sort of care of the elderly wards where they're like, there's quite numerous times where they're having quite complicated, complicated discussions about why well, this person's quite flat or quite low in mood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know your dietitian comes along and kind of thumbs through the food record charts and he's like this person hasn't really eaten properly for about eight days so maybe if we gave them something to eat we'd probably perk up <laughs> uh, you know sure enough it's it, it sometimes as sort of as simple and as complicated as that we should probably just feed them and then they'll be you know they'll be halfway there you know um,
0: <laughs> if i think about myself personally like if i don't have any food and what i'm like it's like it doesn't even take a day it's just an afternoon hours. if i like hours yeah if I don't eat then I'm miserable so then yeah I can, can hardly imagine what half these patients are feeling like being stuck in like hospital beds then and, and also the enjoyment that people get from food as well and how much that can change your mood again I know how much that affects my mood because <laughs> I enjoy eating but yeah if you're a patient in the hospital and you don't you don't have that again that can make mentally that can make such a big difference to your recovery as well
2: yeah, you, you you know you you've hit the nail on the head. I think, and the one of the issues that dietetics has is that the treatment plan. Someone, you know, I, I keep referencing this tweet so often. I need to dig it out, but someone did a really great example of this, where for a for a liver disease patient, you know, with a certain sort of stage of liver disease. The, the advice is to try and give them some carbohydrate and a little bit of protein like last thing in the day so just before they go to bed so they've got something in the system overnight and that helps protect um, skeletal muscle mass And but all you hear is a dietician saying you know have you thought about having a bit of toast before you go to bed or a glass of milk and you walk past and think you know are they getting paid to say this <laughs> you know because it does all or you you hear how often have you ever heard the conversation about supplement flavors you know okay so you don't really like the apple one have you thought about the mango one tropical fruits is nice (laughs) you just just think it sounds um you know it sounds quite basic but obviously that's the that's the job of the dietitian is to translate that knowledge into something that the patient's gonna understand and buy into. You know, there is a bit of a sales pitch there. Um, you know, because as you said earlier, Joe, like the, the general public, they they don't have that level of understanding. You know, that's why there's a whole profession dedicated to it. But you can't say, you know, to the patient, like, you know, or oh, have you thought about, you know, your, your amino acid loss if you don't eat drink this plaster milk? So just, <laughs> You, you would never say that would you and, and i think what, what was really interesting the the consultant physio that you had on a little while ago he, he was up in birmingham he, he said something similar about the, there was a junior with him on the ward um i'll just probably point out that just go and listen to that episode if you want the exact <laughs> story <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not doing any justice at all but yeah he, he's talking about a junior on the ward and and the you know someone comes over sort of one of the consultants comes over and asks him what are you doing and he says oh, i'm just walking this patient but and it's like well yeah you are like but there was a whole assessment before you did that and there's a whole treatment plan involved here and you know this is one tiny little slice of you know of that of that plan um so yes like technically you're you know you're not, you're not fit in by saying that you're taking this patient to the toilet but there's, there's a whole you know there's much more at play here and i think that the issue dietetics is that sometimes it can come across quite simplistic mm. um you know and, and it doesn't for that reason then it gets maybe trivialized a little bit i suppose
1: i think i was quite lucky in that my my first rotation as a as a junior physio was in renal um so i went straight into my my team lead actually being a dietitian and and really getting great exposure to how crucial um patients who are with kidney disease you know how crucial it is in managing what they're eating and and trying to keep them healthy. Um, and I think you know I saw some patients whose whose diet had been really poorly managed and and how badly it affected them. Because I think it you know it's incredible when I when I see um, the dietitian that I work with currently, sort of looking at all these complicated things and words that I would just never even understand and and calculating so specifically exactly how much of this and that they need. I'm thinking, oh my god, like <laughs> it's it's so impressive and there's there's so much to it. Um, yeah, and you know you, it seems like you really have to get that that perfect balance for some of the patients as well
2: it's it's um yeah you do it's re- it's really really i suppose tricky because you know as you mentioned earlier Anna, like the the we we talk about calories and protein and micronutrients and you know all, all this sort of stuff but actually people don't really think like that um, certainly, non-dietitians don't really think like that. You know, you come in from work and you, you know, you might fancy a slice of toast before you have your tea later on, or you fancy, you know, a bit of pasta for tea, or you know, jacket potato, or what, whatever that might be. But you don't. There's not that many people, unless they're, they're paid to have a specific aesthetic for their job in terms of, like body composition or whatever, or they're, they're an athlete, or or they're a dietitian. Um, very few people are like if I eat that jack potato, that, that'd be sort of 400 calories. That'd be pretty good, actually. Um, i might. Like, what what protein source am I going to put with that? You know, not, that's not, you don't go out for dinner and go like, okay, so uh, my carbohydrate's going to be uh, rice today. Uh, <laughs> I think I'll probably put some chicken as a protein source. Where am I going to get my micronutrients from? You know, I'll probably get some fruit and vegetables in there. You, know, you don't, that's not how the world works. You, know, you have that kind of um, sort of social, uh, psychosocial, psychological engagement with food. And I think that's where, when you're certainly talking to patients that aren't intubated and sedated, there is a a fine balance of negotiation between, you know, to to use your example, Joe from renal, you know, those guys are kind of like, you know, so well respected, you know, by the MDT because trying to get somebody to, to cut down on their potassium foods, you know, someone absolutely loves, you know, fruit and they're really, you've been told all their life they need to eat fruit. It's really, really healthy to eat fruit. And then they get renal disease and, and and severe renal disease and dietitian pitches up and says, oh, you can't really eat too much of that anymore. You know, it's a really tricky message for someone to comprehend after doing it, for 50, 60 years to all of a sudden not be able to do it. So how you pitch that, then that goes into all those kind of more softer skills around your patient consultation and behavior change and all that sort of carry on, which is really, really hard to pin down as its effectiveness. And I, I certainly think, you know, again, this is just sort of me spouting on a bit, but I think it's quite telling that the further away a profession gets from, from its physical skill, I think the less you tend to see them around in healthcare, yeah. you know, and you only have to look at, like, you know, mental health services and, you know, psychology and psychiatry and things to, to see the funding issues that, that often happen because it is it's really really tricky to to pin that down as a you know as a measurable thing it's it's i suppose much more tangible to say we we're going to use this technique, and that means that we can walk patients further so we can you know you know that's a measurable thing how far someone can walk, isn't it, but some of those other elements are a little bit more out in the ether, I suppose.
0: Okay, shall we go on to the three fives? So the three fives are, is our recurring section where we get you to reflect a little bit about before um, you joined your profession. So the first question is, when you qualified, where did you see yourself in five years' time? Um, that, that is a good
2: question. Um, I've got quite a terrible memory, so I don't actually know what, what the answer to that is. But I think um, I probably thought, I probably hoped I'd be working in gastroenterology in one way or another, you know, with the bulk of my case though being sort of enterally fed, parenterally fed patients. I think it took me a while to get my head around the fact that, like, this was like my actual career. I think like, because no one, uh, you know, not like my mum or my dad didn't have like an actual career. I didn't, like, know that many people who had, like, an actual career. Obviously, like, some of my mates at school, their their parents were teachers. But other than that, I didn't really know anyone who had a job that they really, really loved. It was kind of like, you get a job and that gets you some money in and then, obviously, that's just a means to an end sort of thing. So I think I was, you know, probably just a bit daft for the first couple of years because I was just like, I didn't, do you know what I mean? Because I never really definitely wanted to be a dietitian from, like, day one or whatever. I suppose I just kind of I was like all oh, right i'm qualified now so i've got that that bit's ticked off so i can just kind of like focus on something else i suppose mm-hmm. and it's only kind of when i started to be like no well you, you have sort of chosen this to do this as a job you should maybe like take it a bit more seriously <laughs> um, and actually i had feedback to that effect from uh, my band six supervisor who was a bit like yeah. i think the exact phrase she used was uh, you need to pull your socks up um, <laughs> Um, but you know, she she did it in a you know she she was very strict actually. Um, we're, we're we're really good friends now, so I, I don't mind saying that. But um, yeah, she kind of gave me that feedback pretty straight down the barrel, like you, know, you just need to like stop messing about, basically treat it seriously. And when I did, you know, um, I, I was I like, really really into it. It was it was you know so fascinating. So I think hmm. yeah, probably probably somewhere in gastroenterology, something like that.
0: And if you weren't doing what you're doing right now, what other area would you? would you be working in or would you like to work in?
2: So I think that the next most interesting area is, um, or possibly the most interesting area is intestinal failure. Um, so this is where, um, this is patients whose who's guts like kind of don't work either completely or, or, or don't work kind of partially um, for a long, long time. And they have to be um, sort of carefully managed with long-term parental nutrition um, and it's just, it's just really, really interesting. The trust I was at before um, I moved to Cornwall was like one of the centers in the UK. Um, and so we had lots and lots of kind of complex bowel patients. And it was just, just so, you know, it's not for everyone, but, you know, I, I understand that there's other opinions out there who are, I mean, they're, they're, they're wrong they're about this. I kiddies. <laughs> <scenario. laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I was like, I was completely taken with it. I was like, oh, was so fascinating. So, yeah, I, I would like to think something like that would be, you know, would be really, really great.
1: We'd love to know five things that you didn't know about your profession before you started studying the course. Five
2: things. There's probably 500 things, I think. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> the first one, which is, like, you know, the, the most obvious one, um, and, and I suppose the reason that I mentioned that when I went to my work experience day before – like as part of the application process and that there was three blokes working there or two or three was that when I arrived at my university course, it kind of got to 10 o'clock and I was like the, the only bloke in the room (laughs) and I was like, all right, okay, cool. Like that's fine. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing wrong with that. But I didn't know that just how female dominated AHPs and in particular dietetics, I think it's something like 96, 97, Maybe even ninety-eight percent female. Wow! wow. And I, I wasn't aware of it, and I don't think you know. I did I did the sort of uh, H.E. diversity webinar thing for AHP's Day, um, and was speaking about this topic, you know, about sort of being being a bloke in a very female-dominated profession. And spoke to a few dietitians in the lead up to that, and I think it's it's really really strange. I'm not really like a sort of I don't know if the right word is traditional blokey person, but <laughs> That sort of traditional, sort of laddish behaviour isn't really for me. So, I suppose I, w- I wouldn't really do it differently. I don't wish it. W- I don't like wish I could like click my fingers and-, and change that statistic. Other than that, you know, I think a, a diversity of perspective is really great. But yeah, I, I was a bit like, oh right, that's something mm. that I-, I didn't know. Um, I don't think it would have changed anything knowing it going in. But yeah, it-, it-, it does take a little bit of getting used to. I think I didn't know how just how scientific it was um Mm. i think a lot of my engagement with sort of nutrition um as i say was quite sort of sports based you know it was very like um very like that that bit of the profession i didn't know just how much of my biomedical science degree i would be relying on um I, I don't think I, I knew even, even though I'd kind of done a bit of research. And one of the things that attracted me to the profession was that it was quite varied in terms of what you could do. Um, you know, you could work in, as you alluded to in your really nice intro, Joe. You could work in a lot of different areas. I didn't realise clinically, you know, for basically every branch of medicine, there's the equivalent for dietetics. You know, um, yeah. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. I, I didn't know how misunderstood it was um or would be i didn't realize like a lot of the job is kind of gently trying to remind some quite cross consultants or cross-looking most of them are actually really really lovely when you talk to them but um you know cross-looking consultants and consultant surgeons about you know maybe we should feed this person you know what do you what do you think But well, basically we should feed this person um, <laughs> And I think, finally, I didn't, you know, as I kind of said just a minute ago, I, I didn't think I would actually like it as much as it, as, as I do. You know, I, I really I really do love it. I really am quite, I count myself as quite fortunate to be one of those people that, you know, really, really likes, you know, I know I've got two jobs, but I really, really like both of those jobs. I really, really like dietetics. I think, you know, I really sort of believe in it. Um, you know, I'm a bit of a fundamentalist for it, I suppose. Um, I think initially, kind of thinking back to when I started in the profession, I don't think... I was expecting that, you know, I think I was treating it as just a, as I said, just a, a, a means of, you know, financing your life, I suppose, but mm. turned into much more, I think, of a, uh, of a vocation than I expected it to.
0: And we normally ask, like, five things you enjoy about your job, but you've kind of covered that but is there anything else in particularly or like specifically that you do enjoy about your job
2: I, I think I enjoy the fact that I've got two jobs um, and <laughs> you know I think being like a frontline clinician and you know on critical care it is for, for me I, I find it one of the most interesting areas there's lots lots going on um it is quite technical at times and, and that that kind of really appeals to me um and I think in the professional lead side of things um you know, I, I love that you get that license to kind of really focus on supporting staff and, you know, you you get sort of space in your job to really think about, you know, culture and development and, you know, I suppose all those nice bits that, you know, lots of frontline clinicians kind of have lots of really great opinions on, but just not necessarily maybe the time to, to dedicate to thinking about them, you know, when you so heads down focusing on that patient caseload you get very little respite from that sometimes especially over the past sort of year and a bit um you know for for lots of people it's been quite relentless so um yeah it's that that blend is is really really great
0: um, so something that we added that was a bit different to this podcast is we asked our Instagram and Facebook followers if they had any questions for you. So someone came back with a question um, asking, how do you cater for patients who are vegan and tube fed when they're in intensive care?
2: So um, quite strangely enough, uh, we were talking about this um, just just last week or the week before in work. Um, the, the short answer is we we can't fully cater for them um, I think it's to do with where the vitamin D specifically comes from um, I think it comes from lanolin like sheep's wool um, and it is, a, it is like a gap in the market around catering for, for like a you know vegan lifestyle there are certain um, what we call modular supplements so like just a protein supplement basically that is suitable um, but that's not a, what we say, a complete feed. So you're not getting, you know, you're not getting the, the full hit with it. I think we, as much as possible, try to just, you know, include patients if they're able to or family members in the decision and just say, look, like, we wouldn't ask you to have this or we wouldn't give you give this to you if it didn't mean that, you know, it wasn't needed, you know, in the same way that you know, there's, there's certain sections of patients that might refuse a blood transfusion or might you know, you would have to have a bit more of a discussion around a treatment like that. Whereas like, you know, all the patients you might just you'd give it, you wouldn't even question it, but it's that kind of put the decision to them as to what would you like to do or put the decision to those family members as, you know, what would you like to do? We, we, you know, we literally have no way to feed this person really. Um,
1: mm.
2: You know, it, it, as I say, it is a, it is a gap in the, in the sort of enteral feeding market. I think that, I think that, um, it's a massive shame, I suppose, that we can't, um, you know, that we can't cater for those people, um, you know, and can't cater to their to their wishes, um, you know, because we're, we're sort of locked into, you know, whatever feeds we've got, you know, in, in the hospital. Um, but, yeah, I, I, would, I would be surprised if one doesn't appear soon, um, to be very honest with you, um, whether or not it's, it's a fully complete feed, it's it's really really difficult
1: so finally we are really hoping that through doing this podcast we might be encouraging um or helping with recruitment into different ahp roles and one thing we'd love to know is what would you tell students or people who are thinking about becoming a dietitian that is a
2: good question um I think I would tell them that it's a really, really great career choice. Um, you know, first and foremost, I'd say, you know, you have picked the best AHP career. So, <laughs> welcome. for that. Ooh.
1: <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
2: no, of course, I would not say that. Um, but I would say, yeah, it, it is really, really rewarding. I think, as I've said, the, the variety of it um, is really, really appealing. So, even if you're you know, completely turned off by critical care and artificial nutrition, and you're much more want to focus on those. Um, you know, kind of like patient-to-patient conversations, or you kind of, you know, public health-minded, or or literally whatever it is. Um, you know, there's an avenue for you to sort of express that and pursue that. Um, I would kind of, I would kind of advise them to, um, to really sort of like know they're like scientists i know you get taught that anyway but i think certainly for um undergraduate dietitians, i think sometimes it's your first experience of university and everything that comes with that and sometimes those early modules can get lost a little bit you know as you get closer and closer and closer to to kind of like qualification um and i think i would probably say try and go and find out about the wider MDT as early as you possibly can um, you know and again something that we've been discussing at work recently is kind of how we I think sometimes we talk a good game about MDT but we could maybe do a bit better teaching it you know to, to students I think like it's very easy to say oh yeah and obviously you there's, there's the wider MDT but seeing How like a physiotherapist or a dietitian or or whatever profession it is like interacts and what they bring to the table and what information they volunteer and what information they're looking out for from you know from the other guys is is a really really fascinating dynamic and and a good MDT is so important for you know good patient care so um, I would encourage them to go and sort of hang out with the physios go and hang out with the occupational therapists and you know find out what they do you know it's much much more than just walking someone to the toilet or providing equipment for discharge, you know, it's a, there's a whole profession dedicated to it in the same way that, you know, I would encourage, you know, any other AHP student to come and hang out with, you know, with, with their local dietitian. you know, it's much, much more than you knowing what supplement flavors you've got on the ward at any one time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> awesome.
0: Perfect. Well, that's it. And thank you so much, Luke. That was really interesting. I think, um, I think we obviously have had the opportunity of working with dietitians in different settings within the hospital setting, but it's it's good to actually kind of get down to a bit more of the nitty gritty of what you do. So thank you so much for sharing that with us.
2: Oh, it's great. Thanks, for, thanks very much for having me.
1: And that is the end of another podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've had a huge amount of fun recording this one and hope it's been fun to listen to too, and also given you plenty of food for thought, but I'm absolutely intended. Luke did use some words that might not be familiar to everyone. So we've included a glossary um, of potentially unfamiliar words in the episode bio. We also will include our social media and links to Luke's social media. So if you want to find out a bit more about Luke or see any more of us, then please head to the episode bio. That's all for now. So thanks again and see you later.